Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Ten years or so ago, the term genotyping and genetics became household names. 23andMe was not the first company to sequence, but they were the first to do it at a cost that was within a reach of a large segment of the population. What unfolded subsequently left something of a bad taste in many people's mouths. The subsidizing of the testing was done by the company on the back of a data acquisition trail that would fill the hard drives with large amounts of data for research and potential commercialization. Not everybody was excited by the deal, and the FDA stepped in, insisting on a pullback from the health guidance offered. To be clear, the genetic testing offered is not full exome sequencing. In other words, 23andMe do not sequence all the pairs in your DNA. What is sequenced by this early player is typically less than 1% of your genes, or a partial exome. For this geek and digital health fan, this was a new chapter and a door to be opened and one I explored with gusto. I took the original deal and obtained a partial sequence and then followed this up with more exploration and study, including finding sites that would unroll and analyze the raw data, comparing it against the latest scientific findings. As the field opened up, I wondered how it could and would be incorporated into general healthcare practice and decided to test this out for myself. Full exome sequencing remains a physician-ordered activity, so I persuaded my poor, long-suffering general practitioner to order the test for me. This was, of course, above and over his objections that were captured with the question, but why? Carrying out the test was easier than expected, and in this instance required a simple blood draw and then waiting. Once the results were available, as a physician ordered test, they sent my results to the ordering physician. The results in this case came on a USB stick, as the files involved were large, approaching gigabytes of data. But it also included a multi-page summary report of findings in some paper form, all of which was mailed to my GP. I dutifully organized a follow-up visit with him to review the results. When the day came, I was excited to attend this visit and looking forward to the review and the discussion. Perhaps my most favorite day attending my GP's office. Today was not to be that day. The experience was a testament to how not ready the healthcare system was for any kind of genomic data. My GP had no sense of these results. They had come in 
but he'd received notification of their arrival and the fact that they'd been scanned into my record, but did not include any immediately actionable information. And as for the USB stick, well, if you've seen Mr. Robot, you'll have a sense of how radioactively toxic this practice viewed any foreign USB stick. It had been destroyed. My GP saw little utility, but he was able to hit print and print out the scanned copy of the paper records that were a summary of the digital information that was in my file. Death to paper. Long live paper. How do we incorporate the new data, insights, and incredible opportunities of this information into our healthcare system? Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Nick Grimscher. He's the CEO of Blue Jeans. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate it. So uh, we've seen, a, I, I think, the emergence of uh, genomic testing. Um, my recollection, I could be wrong, but you know, the primary sort of inflection point for the general population was 23andMe. Uh, it became part of uh, general uh, discussions, you know, water cooler talk. But since then, it feels like we're not really making as much progress as you might have expected based on some of the science and our understanding. Tell us what you think. Well, I, I think 23andMe uh, opened the door to the normalization of having the information available. Unfortunately, where it falls short is that the, the information doesn't fit into the current clinical workflows. And so it's not applicable in the everyday uh, uh, clinical situation where you have a patient and provider interaction. So as you think about that, and you know, I'm, I, I, my history recollection is insufficient to tell us how long, but it does feel like a, a reasonably long period of time ago that that came onto the scene and we've been talking about it. Are we seeing any real benefits of this? Is the value to this information or is it just more data that doesn't actually get used? I don't think we saw any medical benefit from 23andMe. I, I think that that is more of a, of a gimmick product. I think that pharmacogenetic data, generally speaking, is extremely valuable. I think it is our only uh, real uh, precision medicine option to, to integrate in the near future. That being said is it doesn't fit in the clinical workflow and we cannot depend on providers to apply this information either via lack of knowledge or time um, to, to review these re reports. What we're trying to do at BlueJeans is move data quickly through the system and make it clinically viable. Yeah, to be clear, I mean, I think physicians are struggling already with an information overload. The idea that you now on, onboard additional genomic data uh, you know, all the learnings that I, in my experience is sort of coming out on a regular basis. This isn't even a sort of, you know, a trickle. It's almost a, a tsunami of data. It's an impossible task to keep up with for the clinicians, for the patients. We really have to have a better system. Right now, what do you think is the uh, the percentage or the activity that's taking place that's actually producing some input positive input to the healthcare process for patients today? I think it's extremely limited. I, I think that the test is being ordered. I think that it is almost being ordered as a, uh, as a feel good situation, like, hey, look what I'm doing for you, Mr. Patient. I'm looking at your genetic data. But unfortunately, data 
isn't useful if no one looks at it and your health evolves. So unfortunately, we're not in a situation where where patients are getting the benefit on every single script every time that they are sick or in need of care. So given that very low uptake, I think, you know, is that because lack of potential? If not, what is the potential for this? Oh, I, I think that the, the, the potential is, is, is not capable, um, you know, from a avoidable clinical outcome standpoint, um, from an adverse drug reaction um, standpoint, and quite frankly, um, and, and maybe the biggest standpoint is the reduction of healthcare expense. Um, which uh, can be achieved by utilizing this data. And again, it just, it, it just takes a nuance of how we move the data through the system. And again, what BlueJeans is, is, is doing via its API integrations is we are simplifying the data, we are, we are uh, creating queries on an individual patient basis, and then we, we are moving it through an automated humanless system so that the information can be applied. So I, I've got to be honest, I mean, wh- whenever I do these interviews and I talk to people and we're talking about an additional activity, and let's be clear, genomic testing is an additional activity. It's hard for me, or at least for, for the listeners, I'm sure are going to go, well, really, that's a reduction in cost? How is that happening? A, there's got to be some expense tied to it. I don't know how, and I know we've driven the cost down, but there's still a not insignificant amount of cost. How is that a saving? Well, it, it's the old adage, Nick, it takes money to, uh, to, to make money. And, and so we have to be able to invest in healthcare to be able to uh, achieve r- results. You know, my company, we did three recent insurance actuarial studies, one on Plavix, one on opiates, and one on SSRIs. Just to be brief, I'll just talk about the Plavix study. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plavix is a commonly prescribed anticoagulation drug. Um, we took publicly available Medicare data, we extrapolated it against all categories of service, and we were able to show a $4,499 per member per year savings when genetic efficacy was applied. The interesting thing is that very little of that savings comes from inappropriate dispensement costs because generally speaking, Plavix is a cheap generic drug with favorable rebates attached. But it did come into account with avoidable clinical outcomes. So uh, 28% of the population or roughly there uh, of is is what we call ultra-rapid metabolizers of Plavix. So if you're ultra-rapid, you're eight and a half times more likely to have a bleed event. If you were stinted and given Plavix, the likely best case scenario is for you to be restinted in seven to 10 days. Those are avoidable clinical outcomes that cost the system money that could be avoided for a marginally expensive test. You know, it's interesting you bring that up and, you know, it's, it's personal to me because that was one of the things that came out in my profile and I'm not on that drug, but it's certainly one that I'm acutely aware of as a, a possible um, drug in my future. And yet here you are saying that we know this and, you know, to be clear, let's let's take the number that you talked about. So that's one third of the population that is uh, at enormous risk. And I, I think historically, when I first looked at it, a lot of it was about the cost of the drug. But this is now a downstream effect 
And by the way, I'm thinking this is better for the patient. Oh, 100%. I mean, if the drug's not going to work, uh, there's no sense in them taking it. The way that currently that healthcare works is it's a trial and error system. That's why they call it the practice of medicine. So, uh, you know, hey, if this doesn't work, come back and see me and, and we'll try something else. That's particularly true when you talk about behavioral health. There is no necessarily rhyme or reason to how a provider may pick an SSRI. Well, we can tell you day one that, you know, uh, Prozac is going to work or Lexapro is going to work or Abilify won't work. So when we can apply this information and it doesn't weigh down the, the clinical workflow process, it is ultimately going to uh, help the cut, uh, pr uh, patient and then protect the plans uh, as, as it relates to costs. So, I, you know, you're, you're uh, covering off a lot of drugs. My sense of this, the simple answer would be, why would you not test in all cases? And it sounds like, A, that's not happening, or, or is it happening in the flow of info? Oh, where, where's, where's the mismatch in all of this? Well, uh, the mismatch is that the U.S. healthcare system is a business. And um, we have to be able to show to the payers, uh, whether that's state, federal, or private payer, that we can show them a return on investment within year one. The average member is gonna switch within 14 months to a new plan. So if the return on investment takes longer than 14 months, unfortunately, the plans aren't, aren't buying into this uh, program. Uh, like I said, on the onset, you know, I'm an evangelist. I think everyone should have it. But really, where we have to start is focusing on, in on high risk, high utilizing members and how we reduce their costs. And that essentially will those savings will give us the ability to test more and more people because everyone should have this. This should be attached to you like, you know, you have your license attached um, because it's it's in some cases life saving information. And in, in, in its most simplest sense, it's, it's going to save the patient time and it can allow them to heal and get better more quickly. You know, that's an interesting concept. It reminds me a lot of the, uh, I, I don't think it's on the U.S. Um, driver's license, but the blood group used to be part of a driver's license. Certainly my recollection from uh, other countries. And, you know, this feels like similar kinds of information, although we still test and, you know, do some additional things, partly because the cost has come down. So what you're saying is that we can't test 100% of the population, but we could narrow it down to a certain focus group. Is that not just a direction? Let's, you know, explain this to everybody and now we'll test everybody that's going to be put on an SSRI or Plavix or any of these other drugs that we know and can uh, predict. Is that not just a communication issue? Well, we believe it is. We believe that the way that, the, that, that society has evolved is that we don't have time for reading any longer or researching these decisions need to be made in real time and what what our company goal is to be able to move the data so it is actionable in real time and we feel like we can help solve that which will then in turn create 
uh, a higher amount of willingness and our ability to educate these payers on why they should uh, cover this test for more and more people. I like to refer to what we're trying to do as is, is analogous to when you drop a rock in a pond and there's this concentric circle and it slowly gets bigger. Well, we're going to start with this small population that's really sick and we're going to show return on investment there. And then we're going to expand it and we're going to say, hey, these people are slightly less sick, but they need it too. And then we're going to show a return on investment there and we're going to grow it outward. And hopefully the altruistic goal is that everyone will have this data. But I think that the really, really important thing is that although I referenced it personally, having on, on your license doesn't solve it because it still takes a human to read your license. The way that this works and the, what BlueJeans does is it's an automated human humanless system where it transfers data and stops adjudication of inappropriate medications. Um, and obviously that's very simplified uh, of what we do for the purposes of this short conversation. But that ultimately is the only way that um, this information can be applied globally and across the board. So help me understand what you mean by adjudication. Is that the application of the latest and greatest in terms of science that you're providing guidance and uh, essentially a, a sort of oversight or somebody on the shoulder to say, hey, I've got this data and this is the latest science. Is that what's going on? Um, well, how I used adjudication was just in, in reference to the, the plan uh, approving the drug to be dispensed um, and us having the ability to stop that adjudication due to genetic efficacy for the patient. Okay. And, and from a clinician standpoint, how is this appearing for them? Um, they're getting push notifications sent to them that saying that the drug that they prescribed is not advisable and then that we are providing them a genetically viable alternative drugs. Um, <clears throat> now, we don't work for the providers uh, per se, but what we do believe is that these alternative drugs will, will cut down on prior authorization requirements um, and um, and they will be they'll they'll know from an ethical perspective that the drug being prescribed uh, is is viable for the patient. So it sounds like part of this is and, you know, let's pick on Plavix because we've sort of detailed, um, you know, the elements of that. So you've got one third of the population that uh, this this is a no, no drug. Is part of the challenge here that the next step or the next level is a higher cost uh, solution, and that's why there's some resistance, and you know people want to trial the cheaper option. Is that part of what's going on? Um, well, I, I don't think that you can make a generalized statement. You know, I, I, I'm one of the people that don't understand completely the inner workings of the pharmacy benefit managers uh, system. Well, I think you and the rest of the world, just to be clear, right, right. <laughs> and, and and how that process works. But essentially, a lot of the time, we're working with the payers themselves on their formularies to make sure that the alternative drugs presented are not only genetically ethical, but, but also make financial sense. But ultimately, the cost in the, of the drug would be dwarfed by uh, an unfortunate hospitalization. So what we need to make sure is that we're avoiding unnecessary hospitalizations at the end of the day versus, you know, a drug that's, you know, $200 versus $10,000. Well, that dwarfs into comparison on a three-day hospital stay that's $50,000. Uh, 
and, and and to be clear, I mean, I'm not that, that. I don't think that's a negative in any way. Even if the second line drug is, if the first line drug is actually performing no function and no utility, a that's not good for the patient. It's wasted cost, and all of the side effects that you described, you know, are, are consequential and costly. Moving to that next level drug, which, you know, more often than not is more expensive, but there's, I, I feel like that's part of the resistance and this fee for service business, as you describe in the healthcare space. As I think about this from a patient perspective, what should they be thinking and, and how should they sort of approach this whole area? Because in some respects, it's still a little bit of a mystery um, as it is, I think, for the, for the clinicians in this space. Well, the, you know, for, for the patient, we live in the most over-medicated society on the planet on any, uh, you know, in addition to any other time that the United States has, has existed. We're prescribing new medications to, to counter the side effects of other medications. That, that needs to, to cap out somewhere. That's not healthy. You know, pharmaceutical medications, just because they're approved by the FDA, doesn't make them ultimately healthy for the patients. I'm going to use the word healthy. And what we're altruistically trying to do is to make sure the right drug, genetically speaking, is prescribed. 95% of the intervariability between how patients react to medications is due to your genetic profiling. So if we can impact, impact a little bit of that, well, hey, we're going to help protect patients. And, you know, obviously I'm committed, I'm in the space and, and believe in this wholeheartedly um, and, and, and spewing evangelism. However, I can't see how a patient wouldn't want to know this information and wouldn't want to know for their children. I, I just, I don't see it personally. So as you think about the, the key drivers in this, is it about the financials? Is it about the individual? Is it about the clinicians? Who really needs to be the driving force to sort of push this forward? Because ultimately, it's hard to disagree with this. I mean, from any of those perspectives, who who controls all of this? Well, our strategy, so our philosophy, is that this is going to be driven by the payers. Not, and I'm not simply referring to the big five, I'm referring to state Medicaid plans, federal uh, uh, plans, VA plans. And when we take a top-down approach, just like they create coverage determinations for tests and procedures and otherwise, when they create coverage determinations and the ability to, to use this data um, for the betterment of the patient and the betterment of the cost of health care, everyone benefits. But a top-down approach is really the only effective manner in, in our estimation to make it work. Otherwise, we'll get the buy-in from dozens of providers here and there that will use it uh, sparingly on their patient populations instead of globally on large populations that would benefit from this information being uh, uh, available to them as they navigate the healthcare system. So here we are, we're uh, many years past the point uh, that the human genome, and to be clear at the time, that was a single human genome was uh, sequenced at the cost of billions of dollars. We're now at the point of being able to sequence uh, individuals, uh, partial exomes, and much more, and at a diminishingly 
smaller and smaller cost, I think. So it's becoming increasingly available. But the connection of that data, that capability to uh, the insights that we've clearly identified through the science and the research has been to date somewhat disconnected. Here we are at this point in time, we have an opportunity to really help guide the process, connect the dots for the clinicians, ultimately for the payers, since you know they look at this through economic um, uh, glasses. And most importantly, from a patient perspective, we want the capacity to be able to deliver the best possible care first time. And you know, moving beyond this trial and error approach that medicine has you know, long since been, I think we've got better approaches and better opportunities. Nick, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Nick. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, uh, glad to get the information out there. As you heard, the genome brings a whole new data set and useful information into the healthcare setting. But now, unlike my experience years back, there are ways to incorporate this into the clinical setting by integrating the data and bringing real-time data and insights to that patient consultation. As the data continues to expand, along with the science and understanding, we must rely on integration and automation to bring the best of science to the clinical workplace. Your better pill to swallow is to work to incorporate genomic testing results and decision-making into your clinical workflow. While testing does incur additional costs, the downstream positive impact is clear, especially given the frequency of complications from selecting the wrong therapy. Patients need and want the right therapy the first time. Doctors want to give that, and the payers want the cost to be for the therapy that brings benefit to the patient. We can deliver this and do so economically. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it. As one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.